0: Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. John White, and today we're joined by Taisha Campbell. Taisha, please tell us a little bit about yourself and your struggles with weight.
1: Hi, Dr. John. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a filmmaker, and I host a podcast called Sit Black and Watch. I've been struggling with weight since I was about eight years old. I'm now 32 and currently over 300 pounds. And so it's just affected me medically, emotionally, mentally. And, you know, I'm always trying my best to advocate for those who are a bigger size.
0: Taisha, you mentioned that you have a podcast, Sit Black and Watch, and you're an African American woman. Do you think people treat it? you differently as an African-American woman when you brought up
1: issues of weight? I absolutely believe that my race has affected the way I am treated medically when it comes to my weight. You know, we as African-Americans are predisposed to certain foods in our culture, and we have differences in our body type sometimes, and I don't think that that's always considered. And your
0: story unfortunately is a common one in that there has been a struggle with weight. And I want to go back to, you said it started around when you were eight years old. Yes. What did you first notice about that you had more weight than other kids?
1: Well, in grade school, often kids would poke fun of me, calling me names, as most kids do when, you know, you're a little bit different. And I didn't think anything was wrong with my body, but it was always noted by kids at school that I was fat or chunky. And then at home, on the reverse, I was often had comments made by aunts and uncles that, you know, I didn't want to eat so much, you know, don't get a second plate or don't eat after this time. And then I have a mother who is also a plus size woman. So many times comments were made like, you don't want to be big like your mom. So it instilled at a very young age, a body conscientious thing and a low self esteem. Did people make you feel as if it was your fault? Absolutely. Um, Growing up, just constantly being told that I'm overeating when a lot of times I was under eating, you know, being ridiculed in public about how much you're eating. So then you eat smaller portions or sometimes you don't want to eat at all because you feel like anything that you have in front of someone else, like, oh, this person's just going to think I'm being greedy and, you know, It just makes you feel less than and, and, you know, you shrink yourself.
0: And did people make it seem like the solution was easy? You and I had talked earlier about, oh, you just have to to eat less and exercise more. What were you hearing from health professionals
1: and, and even friends? Yeah, so going to the doctors all the time, it was, you're not getting enough exercise. And the funny thing is, I grew up a dancer. And I was in dance classes in school, after school. I was active on that side. But I was always told that I was not active enough. I was told that if I just ate better proportions, if I cut out fast food, which I've done multiple times growing up, completely stopped eating fast food, and I never saw any result in my weight going down significantly despite being so active. I remember one incident when I was about 16, and you know, of course, as an adolescent girl, you're having periods and hormones, and never once was It said, well, maybe we should check your thyroid. Maybe your hormones are contributing to your weight. It was just assumed that I am not eating healthy. And I remember my doctor made me cry. I was very frustrated.
0: You mentioned to me that everything you would ever go to the doctor about, it was always weight, never even considered anything else. How did that make you feel?
1: Uh, It's very frustrating and it's exhausting. At 24, I injured my back and for years I was going to the doctor telling them, hey, I'm in pain. And the first thing that would fly out of their mouth was you need to lose weight. That's what's causing you to have sciatic pain. That's what's causing you to have a herniated disc. Ignoring that I had had a work injury, they were ignoring that I essentially was an athlete because I danced growing up and it made me feel small. It made me feel like I didn't really have a voice and I didn't know how to advocate for myself to ask them to check other options to figure out how I could better my health, especially when it came to my degenerative spine disorder. And what has
0: been this journey of ups and downs in your weight in terms of trying different strategies over the last 20 plus years. What was your experience with that?
1: Well, most of my experience has felt like a failure because I've done a few different diet fads. I've had friends who are very fit and healthy. You know, I've tried out their way of eating and I would see maybe 5 10 pounds at the most that would come off but I've never had a significant weight loss and because I struggle with body dysmorphia I've always saw myself as bigger than I actually was and I would never really notice my weight or being smaller until I saw pictures I often avoided taking pictures I never wanted to take full body pictures so it's been Very frustrating and a little bit of a damage effect to my self-esteem and confidence. And yeah, it's mostly frustrating. And it's angered me at times. Anger. It made you angry. Tell us about that. Yes, it's made me angry because oftentimes when I look in the media, I don't see people that represent me. And I am figuring out, you know, why is it so bad to be fat? I will use the word fat because most people think of the word fat as negative. There is never a positive connotation with the word fat. And so it's made me angry that I, as a fat person, cannot live and exist in my body without someone thinking I don't deserve as much as them, that I don't deserve to be represented on TV and in media, that I should be ashamed of who I am and how I look because I am not a standard straight size.
0: Taisha, did anyone ever say to you, you know what, obesity is a disease and this is our approach to managing a disease, just as we would for hypertension or diabetes. Anyone ever say that to you?
1: Unfortunately, no. Nobody has ever said to me that obesity is a disease. They've never referred to it as a disorder or something that you couldn't control. It's always been referred to as something that is in your ability to control and it's based on your urges. But you
0: mentioned You had to learn how to be an advocate. You had to learn how to speak up for yourself. So how have you done this? Give us the tools and the tips that you have used to better understand the role of weight and how to manage it in your overall health.
1: Well, one of the things that I've done in the most recent years to manage my perception of my weight is one, seeking out therapy to just heal some of the childhood traumas around my own body, going to a nutritionist and and speaking about how I eat, you know, finding a nutritionist that. Was not going to body shame me who our ultimate goal was to be healthy and sometimes healthy isn't always about being the smallest size It's about what you're putting in your body, how you manage that and also just affirmations Affirmations is really big for me Looking in the mirror and telling myself that I am enough You know Telling myself I deserve to be heard Pushing back when I go to the doctor, you know, just being able to YouTube search and Google search ways to advocate for yourself when you go to the doctors and how to speak up and how to be adamant about what it is that you want in your ultimate goal and not being afraid to tell your medical professional, hey, I understand that you went to school for this thing, but I would appreciate if you hear me a little bit more and how You speak about my body and what the the end goal is. You know, I may be fat, I may be overweight, however you want to put it, but I'm still a person. I'm human. I have emotions and I am not perfect. So let's figure out an end goal that's reachable Mm -hmm. that I can, you know go towards. And for some people, that goal may end up not just being food-based, but like weight loss surgery. That may be, you know, there's mm-hmm. just a variety of things that I hadn't even known about that I've just been finding out this year on how to figure out how to be healthier and and take care of my body as I'm aging. And it's that
0: lifelong journey, as you're pointing out, not that quick fix or, you know, a few simple steps. But what have you also learned about the relationship of weight and health? Does that concern you at all about certain health conditions that you might be at greater risk of? How does that factor in to your thinking? Or or do you feel as if in some ways you've just been pressured of, oh, this is just you and you're, you're not even focused? on the long-term complications, because you're angry. I like how yeah. you said that, you're <laughs> angry. And rightfully so, I might point out. But but what is that relationship with weight and health in your mind?
1: My relationship with health and weight is a tricky one because oftentimes on social media, when I see the people that I know lose weight, they usually refer to their former heavier self as depressed, sad you know they they refer to their weight gain as unhealthy unhappy weight gain and it makes me look at, at myself and examine myself and say well man if you feel bad about your weight gain how should i feel about myself because i've been this size for a while and and i've steadily gained weight over the years especially during quarantine you know putting on weight by not being active sure. And it's made me wonder, will I always be plus size? Will I ever be able to lose a significant amount of weight? I've had to do a lot of deep digging within to be comfortable at my size, my current size, and focus on being unhappy with the way that I eat and what I eat and only solely focused on that and not necessarily my body. Because sometimes even eating healthy does not result in weight loss. What's the
0: biggest misconception you had about being overweight and obese?
1: I think the biggest misconception that I had about being obese and overweight was that I didn't deserve a healthy life. And when I say a healthy life, you know, that's relationships, you know, having someone that you would consider a partner treat you a certain way, I always thought, well, They're thin and I'm bigger and they're probably not going to be attracted to me. Um, Being plus size definitely at times put a damper on. The way that I dated because I was so conscious of my body and concerned with the opposite sex attraction to me. And so I've overcompensated in personality. I have made sure that I'm the funny one in the room. You know, I have quirky comebacks. I am the positive person because I don't want to be the fat, angry, bitter person. Oftentimes, people perceive you when you're bigger as um miserable they they automatically project certain emotions onto you that you're not allowed to be happy or you're not allowed to make noise and have joy and you know cause commotion so you often shrink yourself so the biggest misconception was definitely what i deserve what i'm worth and my ability to take up space in other people's presence
0: We'll be back with more from Taisha Campbell after a quick break. And now back to our interview with Taisha Campbell. Now you mentioned that you've gone up and down with weight. You've tried a a bunch of different diets. Did you do most of this on your own? Or did you work with health professionals?
1: Most of my dieting was done on my own. Um, And and I don't know if that was a, a good or a bad thing. I've had some that were successful and some that weren't. And a lot of times it was about my consistency. The few times that I have had some health adjustments with a nutritionist, I've also failed in that just because... When you are not of um, a certain income, it's a little bit harder to purchase foods that are healthier, they are a little bit more pricey, and you know just figuring out cooking options and things. But most of it was done on my own.:
0: And have you had any issues with diabetes or, or pre-diabetes or any other health issues that have arisen because of weight?
1: Yes, so diabetes actually runs in my father's side of the family and um, at one point I was considered pre-diabetic and I was told, you know, you have got to get this weight off or you will become diabetic. And it was very scary, mm-hmm. very, very scary for me. Of course, I have had um, herniated disc. I currently have three herniated discs in my back. Mm-hmm. And although they weren't necessarily because of my weight, it was an injury that happened, Um, My weight gain has put more pressure on my back, which has caused me at times to not have as much mobility. Um, I no longer dance because of the pain, um, so I'm not as active as I would like to be. And then it's also put a damper on my mental health, because when you're not active and you're not getting outside like you normally do, you're not doing the things that you normally do. It's caused some depression and anxiety.
0: How important is weight loss to you at this point in your life?
1: I would say I am on a scale of one to 10, I'm probably at a six of the importance of weight loss. And that's only because it is just very challenging to figure out what works for your body, what exercises you need to be doing, how much you do or don't need to be eating, the type of foods you need to be eating. And sometimes when you don't have that support from a medical professional or even a health professional, like a, a personal trainer or you know someone to kind of guide you along what this should look like, it is very, very frustrating. It's very challenging.
0: So how do you find that right? health professional. We talked about it being a disease, that it's not simply eat less and move more. So what are the tips and tools that you can share to find that health professional that's going to see you as a, a total person and not just say, hey, eat healthier?
1: That's a really good question. For me, I started with a nutritionist. Finding a nutritionist that wasn't just going to hand you a piece of paper saying, hey, these are your three core food groups and this is what you should or shouldn't be eating. Mm -hmm. But a health professional, a nutritionist that is saying this is the type of stuff that you could eat. This is what it called, co- like breaking down foods mm. and and what foods are good for you and how those combinations help and and saying like, hey, let's come up with an actual meal prep. You know, like, let's figure that out. There are nutritionists out there who will help you figure out what type of meals you can put together. I've also downloaded uh, quite a few apps on the phone, you know, thank God for digital, (laughs) the current digital space. Mm -hmm. Um, There are apps on your phone now where you can put in what you have in your fridge and Hey, let this is what the kind of meal it'll, you know, (laughs) accumulate for you to make. And, um, also, personal trainers are really good, and I think you have to figure out when it comes to personal trainers, one that has that education of nutrition behind them because any you can always – go and get a personal trainer who's just focused on, okay, I want to get weight gain, weight loss, muscle, all those things. But finding a personal trainer who absolutely understands nutrition, how foods work for your body, that has some type of medical history behind them and certification, I think is very important.
0: Right. And then combined with a physician or a nurse practitioner and other health professionals who can order those right lab tests, those diagnostic tests to understand the underlying pathophysiology as well. Tell us how people can learn more about you and what you're doing. You mentioned your podcast. I'll be waiting for my interview. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us how they can find out more about what you're doing.
1: Well, like I said, I am a filmmaker and I go by Afrovocative on the internet. And so anybody can find me on social medias at AfroVocative. I usually talk about all things that are regarding the African-American community, things that are uplifting and positive. I love to focus on media and film. So my podcast, Sit Black and Watch, is a podcast that is uplifting current Black films that are coming out in that space, Black television, Black actors, and those that are uh, people of color. I love, love, love talking about those things. So I encourage people to follow me on Afrovocative or Sit Black Watch on Instagram or Twitter. I do film discussions, TV discussions, and just enjoy talking all things TV and media.
0: Well, Taisha, thank you so much for sharing your journey and giving us some tips and tools to address weight.
1: Thank you so much for having me
0: we're talking about the impact of being overweight on one's health. And to help dig a little deeper, I'm joined by my very good friend, Dr. Fatima Cody Stanford, who's an obesity medicine physician scientist at Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. Dr. Cody Stanford, thanks for joining me today.
2: Dr. White, it's a delight to be here.
0: And I just have to acknowledge full transparency. I'm putting it out there for our listeners. I have known Dr. Fatimi Cody Stanford for some time. She was an intern of mine at the Discovery Channel a few years back, and I knew she was a star then, and she is now a superstar. So (laughs) I, I am so glad to see your journey. So thanks for joining.
2: Well, thank you so much. And by few years, he means a lot more than a few years.
0: (laughs) So we're going to talk about journeys, the journey of the patient who struggles with weight. But uh, Dr. Cody Stanford, I wanted to discuss the relationship between weight and other diseases, because I will see patients and I will talk to them about weight. And often they'll say to me, well... I know so-and-so who's much heavier than I am and, and they're fine. Or everyone that has diabetes hasn't you know, been overweight their whole life. So how do you help patients understand the relationship between weight and other diseases? There's that biological hormonal aspect, right? That many doctors don't talk about.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, that's a lot to unpack, but let's talk about obesity as a disease. And one of the key things that I have every single patient do before they have a visit with me is actually listen to an hour-long lecture where I teach them about the disease that is obesity. And with that, they come informed, you know, at that patient visit of how I will think and how I will talk about their disease. But I think the person that you mentioned um, that, you know, talks about different weight status corresponding to different health is actually true. I mean, I have patients that are 300 pounds that are much healthier than patients that have that are 150 pounds. And so, you know, weight is one metric. And when we're looking at weight, we use it as a screening tool to say, hey, you know what, gosh, I need to do a deeper dive, but it is not a diagnostic tool. So the weight by itself doesn't Tell us the whole story. People can carry excess adipose, and what that means is just excess fat. And sometimes that fat is deleterious to one's health, and sometimes not as deleterious. It depends on where that fat is being held and stored in the body. So, for example, if we're carrying that weight or that extra fat around our midsection, Not great for us, okay? Often, it can even be around the organs. When it's around the organs, really not great for us. But if we're carrying that fat in our hip, buttock, and thigh region, you know, what are the organs that it's around is muscle and and bone. And actually, it's actually very beneficial in that situation. So, I have to look at the whole person. You know, the weight is one metric and then I'm able to do a deep dive to see if their weight by itself is problematic and is it going leading to cardiometabolic health issues.
0: You've said a lot of important words there. <laughs> but one very important word that some people may find surprising or disagree with is you said the disease of obesity the disease. And every doctor doesn't always refer to it as such, but you've been a big proponent talking about it as a disease. So help our listeners understand why it's a disease.
2: Yeah. You know, I, I think you bring up a lot of important points, but let's talk about why obesity is a disease and why I say it's a disease. And and hopefully after you listen to this explanation, you will agree with me. So obesity is actually a disease of the brain. Believe it or not, there is a portion of our brain Called the hypothalamus that actually regulates our weight. It tells us how much to eat and how much to store. Um, so notice I didn't say anything about willpower there. Our brain is, is getting signals from different parts of our body. It's getting signals from our fat tissue, our small intestine, our large intestine, our pancreas and our stomach. And these signals are going back to the brain to tell us how much to eat and how much to store. Is
0: it this leptin and ghrelin that we sometimes hear about?
2: So, leptin and ghrelin are two of those hormones. Ghrelin is a hormone that actually causes us to have a more voracious appetite,
0: like a gremlin. I feel like it's a gremlin.
2: Yeah, that's an interesting way to look at it. <laughs> um, actually, I'll probably use that on my next talk. But um, <laughs> when we're looking at leptin, leptin is one of those hormones that helps us feel full. Okay, mm-hmm. so leptin is really, really important. And so since you brought up leptin, I wasn't going to go into really naming the hormones. But leptin is what really helps us to signal down one of the two pathways in our brain. There's one of, that's a more beneficial pathway and then the one that we prefer not to be on. Um, so that there's one pathway that tells us to eat less and store less and that's called the POMC pathway or the pro-opio-melanocortin pathway. And believe it or not, when you travel down this pathway you produce something called BDNF, which stands for a brain-derived neurotropic factor. And when you have high levels of this BDNF in your body, you don't express the disease of obesity with excess fat, okay? Now, my, I exclusively care for patients with overweight and obesity, and so my patients don't signal so well down that pathway. They signal down another pathway. It's called the AGRP pathway or the agouti-related peptide pathway, say that five times fast. And when you travel down that pathway, you actually block the formation of BDNF. So if you have low levels of BDNF, what do you do? You express excess fat on your body. Can you measure these levels? Can you measure them? It's challenging to measure them, but we can affect how the brain signals. And so there are some therapies that we can utilize to help you go down that more beneficial pathway and block the pathway that's not so beneficial.
0: So here you're explaining this science, the biologic reasons why some people may have excess weight. right? And I love the fact that you said, I'm not talking about willpower, but let's let's get real, Dr. Cook right. Stanford, most doctors, most other people will say or think it to mm-hmm. people who are overweight. It's willpower. You just need to try harder. right. What's so dangerous about that mentality?
2: Well, I think it shows how much weight stigma is really entrenched in the work that we do. And and believe it or not, the group known to have the highest weight bias and stigma towards those with obesity is actually physicians. Um, if you look at studies, it shows between 79 and 90% of us actually have tremendous bias to those that have excess weight. And I think that comes from inadequate education. It's only in this year, in 2022, that the AAMC, which is the American Association of Medical Colleges, actually is releasing any core competencies surrounding teaching about obesity as a disease at medical schools here in the U.S. Yet, it's the most prevalent chronic disease in human history. But, you you know, no one learns about it. And so people think it's just a matter of eating less calories and exercising more. And if it were that simple, I wouldn't be here talking to you, not at least about this topic. Um, So it's really important for us to listen to the patient and learn about all of the things. And we know there's about 100 things that cause obesity, things that are like, you know, what someone's eating and, and whether or not they're exercising. But there's so many other things. Stress is a major cause of obesity. If you have chronic stress, what happens is you have more inflammation in the body what happens is you store more fat. So imagine, let's just take us back to the, the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. Regardless of who you were, we experience stress. A lot of people assume that the weight gain that we experienced was, oh, we weren't exercising enough. But you know, companies like Peloton had a major rise in their stocks because people were actually exercising. But what we all were experiencing was stress. And with stress comes storage of fat. Issues like trauma, issues like racism, issues like medications that we prescribe for other issues. We believe it causes 20% of obesity in this country. So there's a variety of factors that we aren't paying attention to when we say the patient needs to just try harder. And I think it shows a little understanding on our part.
0: But the patients themselves, because no one's talking to them about it being a disease, the biologic reason, what's happening in their journey, we've heard it time and time. Again, they think they're a failure. Right? Yeah. Because it's easy to lose weight. You just have to, you said, eat less, exercise more. Well, what, what does that even mean? So, how harmful is it when we don't educate patients about what's really going on? They're going on this journey that is leading them down the wrong path, aren't they?
2: Absolutely. I think you, you've said it quite well. When patients hear from us as doctors or from society that they just need to try harder, Often, many people try harder, and when they try harder, they see it fails. So they may say, hey, doc, I've been working out 60 minutes six times a week. Um, I've been going to my trainer. I've been doing this. I've been eating well. I've been really measuring this, that, and the other, and I've lost one pound in the last six months. A lot of people, and I've heard doctors do this, they'll say, you know, are they telling the truth? I'm not really quite sure about that. And so when we, when we do that, what do we cause for patients? We cause greater anxiety. We can create depression. And then what do they do? They don't want to come and see us as healthcare providers. Why not? Because we aren't trusted sources. We are going to make them feel bad about themselves. Mm-hmm. So when they actually do end up coming into care after feeling bad for how we treated them, it's often at the last, you know, kind of the end of the road where they have such severe disease that their life expectancy is, is significantly reduced and and maybe coming into the ICU with issues that have been complicated that could have been addressed if we just recognize that it's a disease that's treatable.
0: Because they've delayed care, yeah. right? Because I think the only care that that's out there is exercise and and get on a bike. Exactly. But I also want to ask you, because I've seen patients like this, I'd love to hear your thoughts. The patients that are overweight, that are experiencing some health issues, but they'll say to me, Dr. White, I'm okay with it. I'm happy where I'm at. Okay? Yeah. So how do you address that? Because we wouldn't say... It's okay if you have hyperlipidemia, you know, high cholesterol, high blood sugar and we won't do anything about it cuz cuz you're happy eating sweets. So, how do you manage that when they when they don't see the association between excess weight and health conditions?
2: Well, you know, I think that What I do before patients even get in to see me is I order a battery of labs really governed by the guidelines from the American Heart Association, the American College of Cardiology, and the Obesity Society. And it's pretty extensive. So on day one, I have a really good sense of what your cardiometabolic health is like. I have your blood sugar. I have your fasting insulin. I have your hemoglobin A1C, which tells me what your blood sugar has been over the last three months. And often, unfortunately, in that initial appointment, I'm making several diagnoses that the patient was unaware of. With that awareness, however, after doing that really extensive lab panel, usually more extensive than they've ever had, they are getting a sense of how their disease that they're presenting with is actually affecting the rest of them. And it's at that time that they realize, "Oh my goodness, I do need to be, you know, really thoughtful about what strategies I use to address my weight." So I think tying those together and making sure the patient knows that obesity causes over 200 diseases is really really key and very important. And I think it's it's important also not to emphasize aesthetics. So I never compliment my patients on their physical appearance. But what I do compliment them on, Dr. White, mm-hmm. is their blood sugar. I'll be like, look at that stunning blood sugar. Oh my gosh, it's, it's quite, look at that gorgeous, those gorgeous liver function tests.
0: So we're talking about this journey. We're talking about it being a disease and we're acknowledging it's not just about lifestyle, which is typically what we have focused on both in the medical community and in general society. So Dr. Cody Stanford, what are the options that we currently have for patients who are struggling with weight?
2: Absolutely. We actually, beyond lifestyle and behavioral therapy, we have several options available. We have devices that can be utilized. The FDA has approved certain things that can look like medicine but are actually devices. Don't have a pharmacologic action, like for example, a pill that absorbs in your stomach and kind of produces this jelly-like substance to make you feel full. Um, and we actually have physical devices like balloons that can be inserted. That's one strategy. We have medications or anti-obesity medications that can be used. And then we have metabolic and bariatric surgery, which can be utilized. But I want to want to talk about the last two a little bit more and just say that right now in the United States, only 1% of individuals that meet criteria for anti-obesity medications are on them. One percent. One percent. Oh really, that's really, you know, quite dismal, right? And you and I have always been
0: interested in issues of disparities. I'm just going to guess it's primarily Caucasians. It is, yes, as well that are being offered it. Okay, so one percent. I still I, I can't wrap my head around that.
2: Right. I published this in the Mayo Clinic Proceedings just last year. That's the most up-to-date paper looking at the uptake of medications. Wow. Um, Maybe with some of the newer drugs and like adding a few years, maybe it's 2%, but I mean, nothing award-winning. No. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then with bariatric surgery, only 2% of individuals that meet criteria for bariatric surgery are actually getting surgery. So that means we have 3% of individuals that are accessing kind of more um, advanced um, therapies and interestingly enough, lifestyle fails about 90% of the time. So, you know, it's it's really perplexing because we have evidence base to support particularly the use of, of anti-obesity medicines and metabolic and bariatric surgery and significant improvement not only in health but also in life expectancy and quality of life, you know, people that are now able to run after their kids for the first time. And they're like, wow, I I did, I was able to catch my child. I've never been able to do that. I mean, these are, these are things that you wouldn't see in a, a clinical trial, right? Like you wouldn't, that wouldn't come out, but, um, seeing improvements in, in, um, the number of heart attacks, um, kidney function, heart failure, all these things have such dramatic improvement. Um, if we really, treat the patient for the disease of obesity.
0: But you mentioned earlier, patients come in late. Yeah, They wait too long mm-hmm. because they think it's their own fault. They've been told it's their own fault. They've been told it's simple solutions. They don't understand the impact of it being a disease. Yeah. So what should listeners know? What should they do?
2: Yeah. So many people struggle on their own, right? Like you don't know about their struggles. They haven't really sought care and they're silently struggling with this. And then they happen to hear this interview or they hear something else and they're like, wait a minute. It's not my fault. Wait a minute. This is disease. I can actually get treated. Yeah. Now, Unfortunately, we talked about the bias that physicians and other healthcare providers have. So they may go to their doctor, and their doctor may reinforce these inaccurate statements of just eating less and exercise more and feel, you know, kind of defeated. But I would say, don't feel defeated. Obviously, that's not the right doctor for you. And so what I would do if I were in that situation is I would want to find a doctor that actually does know about this disease. And there, there's the American Board of Obesity Medicine, and they have a website that you can go to is abom.org, and you can actually just find a physician based upon your city and state, someone that actually cares for this patient population. And you could, believe it or not, we will find someone probably in your area that could treat you if you're finding that initially working with your primary care physician or other advanced practice provider like an NP or PA is not giving you the thing that you need, like that you've done lifestyle, you've done it 60 times and it hasn't worked for you. And you don't want to do 61 because like what's the definition of insanity, right? Just doing the same thing and expecting different results.
0: It's finding that healthcare professional that's going to help you in this journey. And all too often we don't get the feedback from a healthcare professional that we should. So here's one strategy to do that.
2: Exactly. And I think that's really important. I mean, I always tell my patients, I want them to have a good fit with me. I treat my patients like they're my family. And I think that they all agree with that. Um, But I might not be the right fit for everyone. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. I want, you know, my patient or whatever patient to find someone that they can work with long-term because obesity is a chronic relapsing, remitting disease. And so if that means if that's the case, that means they're gonna be in my purview for years and years and years. Right. The intensity of their care may vary over time. So maybe I just have to see some people every year, whereas others I may need to see every three months, right? So it just depends on what where we are in your journey, but I want it to be the best fit.
0: You're a big proponent of using the correct language yes, and how language can be a motivator or a demotivator. Right. And you've corrected me when you <laughs> feel I've used the wrong language. You've emailed yeah. me when you feel at WebMD, we did not cover a story adequately yeah. with the right language. So I, I wanna end with you talking about the importance of language when we're talking about overweight and obesity.
2: Yes, absolutely. This is a favorite topic of mine, and I think it can really bode well with people understanding this as a disease. So we often hear the word obese, right? So these obese people, it implies that you're defined by that. And obese is a label, obesity is a disease. So we want to use something called people first language, which means a person with obesity, much like you would say a person with cancer or person with high blood pressure. They have it but aren't defined by it. Now, a lot of people don't like the word obesity. And and I think it's because so many negative connotations are attached to most people don't think of it as a disease. But when we frame it as like something you have that we can address, it kind of shifts some of that thinking, you know, even if the word still sounds like a dirty word. There are a few other terms that I don't like to use. Morbid is one of them. Morbid obesity is what we hear. You know, we don't call it morbid COVID. We don't call it morbid cancer. We don't call it morbid heart disease. But we somehow call it morbid obesity. And even in that, we can see our bias, right? All of those things can kill you. Obesity, yes, is one of them. But what about everything else? So let's call it what it is. And what we usually are using that term for is to to really define severe obesity. So we would say a patient with severe obesity. Not morbid obesity, but severe obesity. And so it is a big problem, severe But it's not morbid. And so these these terms really mean something. And, And even when patients come into my office and they're referring to themselves in a negative or derogatory fashion, I will stop the visit and I'll say, okay, why don't we rephrase that? And let's say it like this. And then they're actually having to do internalization because often patients with obesity are all their own worst critic, right? So they are really hard on themselves. They believe negative things about themselves because this is what society has told them. And I want to change that narrative. I want to say, look, yes, this is a disease. Yes, you have it, but it is treatable. And we have a variety of tools that we can use. And I'm sorry that you haven't had access to them until now, but now that you're here, let's utilize the right tool for you to get you to the healthiest weight.
0: You are changing the narrative. I introduced you as a rock star and that <laughs> is what you are. Dr. Fatimi Cody Stanford, thanks for taking the time today. I know you had a lot on your plate today as well. So I appreciate you educating us as to why we need to understand how obesity medicine is an area that we need to focus on because obesity is a disease.
2: Well, I'm thankful to you know you for giving me a platform to, to share this message with the over 110 million adults that have this disease. It's a disease, it's getting worse. It won't get any better until we change how we treat this disease and change the way we treat the people that have this disease. And so- I will continue to spread that message here in the U.S. and around the world to hopefully change that narrative. And I would love to be alive the day when we can say that obesity rates are actually declining um, instead of the steady increase that we've seen here in the U.S. around the world since 1980.
0: A big thank you to Taisha Campbell and Dr. Fatima Cody-Stanford for being part of our show today and to all of you for listening to Spotlight On our special edition of the Health Discovered Podcast. I'm Dr. John White, the Chief Medical Officer for WebMD, reminding you that better information leads to better health. Until next time.